0: Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at provisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Vox Media is looking for a principal designer for their platform group, and you can work out of their NYC or DC offices as well as remotely. Also, this month, we've included a bunch of job postings from Indeed.com for full-time positions across a number of different titles. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today.
1: You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry.
0: Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just have two quick things that I want to mention. First up, of course, is a reminder about our Holiday Gift Guide contest. We published our Holiday Gift Guide earlier in the month. There's a lot of really great stuff on there. Just go to revisionpath.com, click on the green banner that's at the top of the page. It'll take you right there. And if you scroll down to the bottom of that, you'll see the entry form. So you have a chance to win something From this year's gift guide Maybe it's an emoji pillow Maybe it's a copy of Sketch Whatever it is that you want Just make sure that you enter that in And go ahead and do that by December 15th Tomorrow Because that's going to be the last day for the contest So go ahead and get that entry in today And I will announce the winner Probably on Thursday's episode I'll go ahead and announce the winner then Secondly, I've got some really good news So Revision Path has been nominated in the Most Inspiring Design Podcast category For the first annual Creative Market Awards So we're up against some very stiff competition So I really need your votes in order for us to take home this wonderful title We've got a link in the show notes uh, that takes you right to the voting page You can only vote once per device And the voting ends tomorrow, December 15th They didn't really give me a whole lot of time But if you're following us on Facebook or on Twitter or you're on our email list, you probably already got a notification about this. So please go ahead and vote just in case you hadn't. There's a link in the show notes. Winners are going to be announced on December 17th. So it's really important to go ahead and get your vote in. Don't delay. Again, thank you so, so much for that. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. Sign up today for a free account at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next project? Then check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code SPREADLOVE and save 10% off your purchase. All right, here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. We are now at 26 patrons for a combined total of $169 a month. So it's a little bit of a drop uh, from 27 to 26, but it's not a big drop. I mean, it does sound like a big drop in terms of the money, but that's about how much we receive after Patreon kind of takes out the transaction fees and everything like that. So again, a huge thanks for everyone that has already pledged your support. We're able to take that money and put it right back. ...into the production of the show, which is always a great thing to do. It sort of keeps things running. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways... ...early access to future episodes and free Revision Path swag like stickers and t-shirts... ...we might have some more stuff coming up next year, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month. All right, now for this week's interview... This week, I talked with Diogenes Brito, who is a product designer at Slack. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Well, my name is
1: Diogenes Brito, and I'm a product designer at Slack.
0: So talk to me about what it's like working at Slack. I know that it's gotten a lot of press, of course, in the past few years because so many businesses are using Slack to kind of replace inner office communication methods and stuff.
1: Yeah, well, it's... Really great, actually, and I can say that from a totally genuine and not just saying that sort of place. Um, (laughs) It actually is my uh, favorite place that I've ever worked so far for a variety of reasons, but I think at its core, it's because it's a very mission driven company, and personally, I really resonate with the values. Of the company that I think are very much expressed in all of the work we do and the way we work with each other. And that I think translates very much to the product, which is what initially sort of hooked me in. I actually dropped my resume in right after I went through the onboarding experience for the first time.
0: When you say you dropped it, like you... I sent it in. Stopped. I sent... Uh, oh, okay.
1: I sent it into to work at TinySpec, I think, was the old email address. There wasn't a jobs or careers site at that point.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, also speaking of Slack, you've gotten a lot of press lately for an article that you wrote about, you know, kind of part of your design process at Slack, and the, the title of the post was uh, Just a Brown Hand. And for those that haven't read it or checked it out yet, I'll link to it in the show notes, but tell us kind of about the piece and the motivation behind it.
1: Well, I recently, the, uh, the story I kind of told in the piece was just that I had had this internal conflict, essentially, about creating this graphic that included a brown hand. And I decided to change the color of the hand to one that I thought was more appropriate. One, because I was the designer on the project. But two, because I actually think it went better color-wise just in the composition. And when I did it, no one, throughout the whole process, no one really said anything, but it was something that I had thought about a lot. And then later I was kind of, a little bit sort of on edge, waiting to see if anyone would say anything. And then I didn't really relax until I had seen some positive response to just that graphic and people writing about not the fact that the feature was released, but the fact that the hand in the graphic was brown. And I thought, oh, okay, that was definitely worth it. I'm glad I made that choice. It meant something to other people. And, you know, I'd like to tell people a little bit more just so they feel like, it is something that I thought about and that they feel maybe when they run into that same conflict internally that they make the, the right decision, I guess I'd call it, but or a good decision and feel okay about making whatever decision they make.
0: Yeah, I've seen a lot of tweets about the post where people are like, yeah, you know, it's really, I guess, you know, speaking positively about the company that you were able to sort of autonomously make that decision and nobody really said anything about it. Nobody blinked an eye, it seems like, which I feel like for, and I could be generalizing here, that's kind of a rare thing for designers of color to make that kind of a big, it's not a big gesture, it's a very small gesture, because you allude to that in the piece, like it's just a small gesture to change the skin tone, but what that could mean in terms of, I don't know, perception or things like that.
1: Yeah, I think we're all very used to basically never seeing that sort of thing, or very rarely seeing it, and that makes us all feel probably like it's not okay and it's not something we should do or maybe that it'll be bad for business because it's unusual or people won't relate or whatever it is. You know, the reasoning against it seems like it's just hanging in the air, kind of amorphous. And Mm -hmm. just deciding to do that, I think Slack is partially because it's a startup and, or, well, it still is a startup, but it's a kind of place where there still is a lot of autonomy to be had, I think. You know, we were sort of empowered to make that decision and go for it. So there may be other places where I would have had to check with various marketing departments or something like that, and maybe I would have hit roadblocks. But the way it worked here it was just I was the designer assigned to the project. They needed a graphic by the next day, and <laughs> there it is. had to be done.
0: Are you surprised by the feedback that you've been getting? Because, I mean, the piece has been on, on Quartz. It's been on Fast Company. Are you kind of surprised by how much this has spread? In some ways, I am, because partially because I'm
1: sure someone else did something similar at some point, and it didn't catch on in the same way. So the reason it did, there was a variety of things that happened. I think I got retweeted by some early like Twitter users with a very dense network of other early Twitter users, and then... I think Medium retweeted me and they have a million followers. So it kind of spread in this organic way that I'm not sure just any post on Twitter would have spread, especially because it was tied to Slack. So there's that. And I think Slack is has a pretty good relationship, I think, with the media and right now in, in general. So that was part of the reason. But on the other hand, I could sense that a lot of other people probably felt the same way and weren't saying it. So You know, it's easier to sort of reshare or retweet someone else's um, experience, you know, because you relate to it than it is to kind of generate that kind of thing on your own, especially in some compelling format or as part of some other project that means something. So from that perspective, I I see how it could have become that popular. But on the other hand, it's kind of luck of the draw.
0: (laughs) Has there been any, I guess, expectation of you now since that has come out?
1: Not really. You know, people come out of the woodwork to get a, to try to grab coffee and pick my brain in airports. (laughs) I can't tell you how many um, emails I've gotten with that exact line in it. But that was actually happening before, after the second round of funding was announced for Slack. That, you know, sent in a drove of people, anyone even like a little bit connected to me somehow. It's like, oh, you know, i we were in this program together way back when I noticed you're working at Slack. There's a lot of that. So I think there's not any unusually high demand for anything like that now, but it has a little bit. I don't think I've been put in a position where that's like the focus of my work or that is the thing that I am known for. Maybe except that since it is the most popular thing I've written, it probably to a lot of people is the reason that they've heard of me in the first place, if at all. Mm -hmm. So You know, maybe that does mean I become the kind of person who talks about that sort of thing. And I'm not really mad about it. I'll take the chance to sort of improve the situation for all of us if I can. But I'm just one person. I'm not like a spokesperson for all of brown folks. So (laughs) you do what you can, I guess. Try to put down the ladder behind you, you know?
0: Yeah. Now, I first heard of you last year, uh, actually for a piece that you wrote on Medium, about designer job titles. That I mean, that really spoke to me because... The titles around the work that people do in this industry are changing so much, and they can differ per company, they differ per region, and, and things like that. Talk to me a little bit about that piece, about your motivation behind that.
1: I actually struggled to make that piece not as sarcastic as I like wanted it to be. Um, <laughs> and it ended up still pretty, I think that gave it a little bit of an edge, because the impetus, like the energy behind writing it, was that I was hearing all of these crazy titles bandied about. And I actually kept having to explain what it is that I did, what it is that other people did and I want to share with people like what design means in different contexts and be able to talk to people from my school who were younger than me in the same program and have them understand like what kinds of jobs they were looking at in the industry and that all involves sort of interfacing with job titles. So I wrote that because I was kind of frustrated and and annoyed that it was so hard to pick out what it really meant and that not only that, but it was difficult to figure out what the thing you wanted was, what it actually meant at a specific company, what skills other people who had the job title had. There's all these weird factors at play where it's like you want to be something, but maybe you're not yet and the company wants a certain thing, but they're calling it something else and maybe... Someone who's older than you has a, you know, a different version of the same title, and maybe two people do the same thing, but they have different job titles, but one's more marketable, and it's just like this mess. And, I mean, finding what you want to do in your life is already hard enough, but <laughs> labeling it in a way that fits into a successful career and finding that job is like a whole other level.
0: Yeah, I know when I was coming up, there was just web designer – That was it. You're a web designer or a graphic designer. And now, of course, as technology has grown, there's web designers and product designers and UI designers or UX designers or behavior designers or experience designers. Like there's so much other stuff. And, yeah, like you said, for people that are really trying to get into the industry, it can be a little mind boggling as to where they should put their focus at based on a title, which, quite frankly, could evaporate in a few years.
1: Right right it's very much figuring out well part of the reason is actually that design as a field is so broad and at least as it stands in this industry we like picked maybe the wrong word to begin with i guess because there's designers across a whole bunch of different industries and fields that don't go by the name designer right there are like an architect right that mm-hmm. that is a much more sort of narrow in scope term but it's you know it's a designer for buildings and you kind of have an idea of what they're going to do and maybe in other industries you have like a nice little adjective to go with it you know industrial designer that kind of job title you know like in many ways a person who might be a blacksmith is a designer because they're actually deciding and sort of designing what you know a form is going to be or a stonemason is a kind of designer for stone right these are all nice like very specific job titles but because I think partially because the industry has been changing so fast and the technologies where your skills can be applied has changed so fast. The title is really broad and the skill set is really broad and all the kinds of things you could do. You know, that's a pretty large set. So, you know, I think the job title reflects that. But along with that ambiguity comes a bunch of other problems.
0: Especially if you have to deal with recruiters. Oh, yeah because they really don't know if you don't know they really aren't going to know yeah what you do they'll just lump you into i mean i may i guess i would consider myself a web slash product designer but i've gotten everything from junior designer positions to like j2ee engineering positions and it's like they don't know where based on my skills where i fit within this sort of spectrum of what job titles are and you know also kind of like i alluded to earlier some of it is a regional thing like I know, you know, maybe out in the valley, there's a lot of different job titles for different types of designers, whereas you might come out here to the south, I'm in Atlanta, and it's it's not that broad. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, some of these terms are introduced by people trying to distinguish themselves in the market or a set of people trying to distinguish themselves. I've even mm-hmm. felt this pressure myself where, you know, I call myself X designer and I have this set of skills and I'm good at these things. And then all of a sudden, I see a whole crop of new people, maybe students coming out of a certain program or just a, a bunch of people who work at a certain company or whatever that call themselves that same term, but use, use it totally differently. And maybe that starts to become popular in the way that other people think about it. And it sort of forces you to change your own title because now, you know, you can say it, but in people's heads, it'll mean whatever, you know, they heard before. That's kind of the problem with like, for a long time, we've talked about making design more than just like graphic design right Mm -hmm. and making it mean more part of the problem is back in the day that's what it was it actually it was graphic design that was the only thing you did that was the job and that's what people had experience with and so to suddenly be like 10 15 years in say hey actually no we're so much more it, it almost means that we need a new title to go along with that because the words meant something from before it sounds like a
0: trap Like, it sounds like eventually we're going to sort of paint ourselves. And when I say we, I mean the design and perhaps the tech industry by proxy. We're sort of putting ourselves into a trap by defining ourselves by these nebulous, often changing titles.
1: A little bit. I mean, there is a possibility that we just run out of words. I'm kind of hoping that someone will come up with a new term and you'll be like, yeah, that's it. That sounds (laughs) like what I do. And other people understand it as the same thing, you know? Yeah. But you're right it's hard to say but then again it's not so different from what happens in other industries necessarily where you might have like an analyst title and it's no one really knows <laughs> what it is exactly and that's okay because it's a broad set of things but you have like a you know a rough starting point you have a little bit of a stake in the ground and design can probably function in that point as that kind of job title the way analyst or associate is just like person in this sort of job, Mm -hmm. the difficulty is more when you want to distinguish yourself as a specific subtype or a more experienced version of that one thing. You know, do you have to add modifiers or do you have have to say designer and something else? It's a little bit tricky and you definitely need a lot of self-reflection and like checking out the marketplace and figuring out what it's called at the companies you want to work for because sometimes, you know, maybe it's designer to you, but it's you know, program manager to Microsoft or something. You know what I mean?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. In your piece, you talked about a product designer. The definition that you said is a product designer is a professional who can take barely formed ideas from conception to completion within the business constraints of time and money. Alas, even this term there isn't a solid definition.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the term product designer is actually an older one used for like physical products. I actually studied product design in college and that was, that's a mechanical engineering major, right? And that's mechanical engineering product design positions are about those physical products. And it's not industrial design. It's kind of this in between figuring out how to make that form, something that actually works and all the things that go into that. Maybe it's CAD, maybe it's like thermal stress analysis, all this kind of stuff around making a physical design real. And, that's part of what informs my view of that term, which is a little bit using the, that sort of adjective on designer, product designer, to expand the scope a little bit to make it apply to more than just the looks of it, more than just, you know, more about the question of, of why you are doing that thing and what the right question to ask is and what the best solution is and how that is implemented exactly. Not just in idea form only. So that's kind of how I see it. But no, I mean, basically, no one agrees, essentially, is the point, <laughs> because everyone wants it to be everything. And the people who call themselves a product designer, they're like, yeah, I'm a product designer. I can do all these things. I have all these skills. And then other more junior people see that. And they're like, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds cool. They, and they call themselves a product designer before they have that skill set, which causes us to want to be like, oh, well, I have to change again. Or also, you know, we all design is, I want to say it's more about the creative process than anything else. And in in terms of being an expert in the creative process, that's like, I think so many people are capable of doing that. And a lot of any kind of design translates sideways into another kind of design there. I know a lot of ex-industrial designers who are more digital designers. Now I know there's a lot of sort of people who came from more front end development and became designers and they can do the job, but when they become designers, they kind of bring a different set of skills and perspective. So they all arrive at the same job title, but because they're coming from different angles, you end up with a very mixed set of people good at different things. So it's, it's still very loosely defined, even though they all kind of converge on that title. And I don't know how much convergence is really required for the title to be useful, but it certainly makes it difficult for people to explain it and get into the field.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. You mentioned earlier you went to college at Stanford. You majored in product design. Tell me about that program. Do you feel like it really prepared you for the working world once you graduated? (laughs) You know, in some ways
1: it did, and in some ways it didn't. I think, so it's a mechanical engineering major. That's the depth of it. They like to tell us we are T-shaped people. We have a breadth of knowledge with a technical depth in one area, in this case, mechanical engineering. And it was really about That depth and the breadth of knowledge was provided in terms of like the general studio art classes, design and business factors classes, user research, user-centered design. There was all this ethos about like that design thinking process, like bias towards action and checking in with the user, and that kind of looping and like fast iteration kind of creative process, and that is actually super handy, basically for anyone in any field. So it felt like we were prepared for everything until we decided to try and find a job, in which case it seemed like (laughs) we were prepared for nothing because there wasn't specific we could say, like, we are really good at X with the exception of, like, you know, certain kinds of mechanical engineering stuff. And honestly, if you were the kind of product designer at school who didn't really take to the mechanical engineering core part of the classes, and there were a a number of us... (laughs) That wasn't like a viable option for you, depending on your math skills. So I felt like I had to do a lot of work on my own to kind of take what I had learned and really focus it and turn that into a depth in a field where I could really like sell myself as being handy and and useful in that field. And in my case, it was, you know, it was digital design. It was website design. Because I had always done digital, you know, website design on the side for money, basically, and I thought, like, oh, this is great. You know, it's much faster, and you get to see the fruits of your labor more quickly than you get in physical product design. But I, yeah, I have friends from the same program who ended up as product managers. Friends who went into a different field entirely. You know, they're in agencies. They're doing all kinds of things. So I think it prepared us for five years, four or five years out.
0: <laughs> uh-huh.
1: Made that first. One, two, three years out of college, really uh, a journey <laughs> trying to find ourselves and specifically which version of ourselves a, uh, someone would pay for.
0: I got you. Well, speaking of that journey, and I'm sort of playing a little bit off of your name here, Diogenes is a philosopher, also known as Diogenes the Cynic. So I want to ask you sort of a philosophy question. What is your philosophy as a designer? I'm not sure
1: I have like a one statement that will sum up my perspective, but I think because of my background, partially as an engineer, also as a person who grew up in New York of modest means, I think I have a very sort of practical bent and practical perspective. So there is a limit to how, I guess, designery I get before I have to look back at myself and laugh and think, oh, well now, you know. Too dribbly, or whatever you might want to call it. So, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know how to answer that question. You know, actually, I would probably maybe say that my current perspective is very much aligned with Slack's mission statement, which is to make people's working lives simpler, more pleasant, and more productive. I just love that. I think that is a great thing to get behind. And that's, I think, great as a way of approaching doing work and working with other people and the product itself because I've always been drawn towards tools and helping other people get work done and designing to sort of empower other people to do things partially because of my indecision about what's important and what's like worth doing so you know I could think oh I don't want to waste my time doing something unimportant I want to give back I want to help the world, etc. But is that, does that mean design something for the refugees in Syria? Or does that mean like something for civic government? Or does it mean, you know, save the whales or or something that has to do with the, I don't know, curing cancer? I don't, there's so many problems out there to tackle, many of them worthwhile, many of them not worthwhile. The idea of making a tool instead for other people to tackle the problem is like, woo. that's freeing to me. That's like, the holy grail right there, which is part of the reason I was drawn to Slack in the first place, I think.
0: A few weeks ago, I interviewed Dr. Dori Tunstall. She's a associate professor of design anthropology at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. And one of the things that she mentioned when I talked with her was that design was sort of the way of making thoughts tangible in a way. And sort of speaking to what you said about using design to sort of solve real world problems. One of the things that she was tasked with was creating the U.S. national design policy, which I didn't know we had that. <laughs> I didn't know that the U.S. had that sort of stance, but her and other designers came together and created this in 2008 as a way for designers to kind of get involved on, on, I guess, a civic level with instituting change, whether that's locally, whether that's, you know, nationally or something like that. So I I feel like there are a lot of those opportunities out there and for – I think the the challenge is having people look at it and decide that's something they want to do. Like it it seems like it's more sexier to work for a Silicon Valley startup than to redesign your town's local voting ballot or something.
1: Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I think – I actually think it it would be great for – to hear more about that and to hear – more people getting recognition for that sort of thing for like doing that kind of design i think there's a little bit it's a little bit the same in the enterprise software space actually because it's not super sexy to work on enterprise software people want to work on like a facebook kind of thing instead of i don't know a Salesforce or something like that but Mm -hmm. it's the same kind of one level up of impact right because you're helping companies do stuff and or you might helping the government do something is like even bigger that's I don't know how I would pitch that to folks. It's a tough sell. Yeah, it's so important, but making it feel like it's worth people's while. Because part of the problem is that in a lot of these situations that need the most design... Well, actually, let me bring it back a little bit. Okay. Have you ever read that article? I think it was called Design is like the Canary in the Coal Mine or something like that. No, I haven't heard of that. It was this article. I think it was actually called UX is a Canary in a Coal Mine by... um, Irene Ow, I think it was and basically it was the idea that when certain other problems begin to surface in an organization like the design team is one of the first to be affected and that you can kind of that there it's like a leading indicator instead of a lagging indicator of what's happening you know that design team morale is like an indicator of company health Because whether they feel empowered or disenfranchised is like a symbol of, you know, whether other people the same way. And they're kind of, they're somewhat responsible for the way product quality turns out, right? So that, you know, it has sort of cascading effects down the product output stream, right? And I think as a result of that kind of, that same idea, the places that need the most design, those are the places with the worst design. Those are also tend to they tend to be the places that are like, oh I don't feel like I can get good work done here. It's like really hard, you know, there's lots of bureaucracy or something. I don't feel like I'm supported or empowered to make these decisions that I think will really result in a better product or a better experience or this, that, and the other. So yeah, it's kind of the the strategy and the processes of a company all kind of manifest within the design team and then by extension in like the product and or in whatever is getting worked on. So in a lot of these places where they would really benefit from like, you know, good designers doing the Lord's work in there and making things better are the places that a designer like wouldn't really want to work because they don't they're not kind of set up for success and it feels like a very much like an uphill battle. I have to first convince everyone design is important and then, you know, try to pull resources and convince people that like being user centered is actually the right thing to do. And that's, you know, a lot of what drives designers is just making good work and like that creative process. And it's not any of that other stuff, you know, they're not signing up for, Oh, I would love to have lots of stakeholder meetings to convince them about this design, because most of them, you know, designers aren't even, they're figuring it out too. Like they're wondering what is the best design, right? And then they have to go take that and try to sell that. Like it's like the golden egg to all the stakeholders and the CEO, and it's like a huge energy drain. So it's a tough sell. It's a tough sell. That's why I like that it's kind of more in the air right now. More people just kind of agree, you know, design is more important. We should focus on design. And then they have to say, what is design? What does that mean? What's a designer? Like all these things. They're kind of, I don't know, they're floating around in the water a little bit more now. And I think it makes it easier for people like us to do good work.
0: And I think also, you know, kind of to harken back to what we discussed earlier, all these different job titles don't help with that. Right. Because chances are the people that you have to sell it to, they know designer, web designer, graphic designer. They don't know all of these other titles or what the the eccentricities are that relate to those particular titles.
1: But also they don't look very far past the surface level, right? Right. You know, in terms of, they don't look beyond the artifact that the person produces. And that's like a very human thing. Like, you know, an engineer writes code and like to them, the work is the code that you produce because at the end of the day, that's the output. But really all the important stuff is that sort of mental, that analytical problem solving, right? That breaking the problem down and the components and making it so that it all interacts in a maintainable way yada 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 but to people it's just kind of outside that field it's just represented by the code itself right it's the same with design where people don't see past the design into all the thought and the reasoning into design they just feel the interface the that one thing they had contact with the artifact the the Mm mock-up right and it's all you know, I feel like half my job is getting people to using these artifacts to get people to think about the deeper questions, you know, the things that actually matter. Because really, it's not like oh, the exact color of this or the exact placement of this. It's like the, the purpose. Like, why are we even here? What's our goal, right?
0: Do you feel like your design voice has evolved over time? Not in the way like an
1: artist's voice would evolve, I think. Not really like, a, oh, I have my style and my look and that kind of thing. I think maybe what I care about and what I hang on to has changed a little bit. And I think it's the, the same progression any designer goes through as they start more junior and become more and more senior. It's just about you kind of realize what's important, you know, how much mm-hmm. ownership you feel like you need to have, how important it is for like everyone to touch the design in order to feel like included and committed enough that it actually gets out there. You know, it can feel, I think, for a designer that you really want to have made your mark, that it's your design, that you did this thing and like it's out in the world, right? Kind of like a sort of a rock star mentality. Yeah. And really, you know, if you actually want to get this stuff done in the world, especially if it's something larger scale or bigger, you know, it's all about getting other people behind it and on board and with you and working hard on it. And that involves a lot of trade-offs and changes and maybe so many sort of incoming inbound requests that it feels like it's no longer your design but you know without that it would have never made it out to the world so you know knowing what parts of the design or the process you need to hold on to to like maintain its integrity and to keep the important goals like still around by the time it gets out into the world I think that's the part that's changed for me like what now I know better what I should spend my energy, you know, trying to keep or trying to convince someone of, or, you know, how to present things so that maybe the entire design changes or whatever my ideas and my solution changes. But the, the thing that's important, the problem I wanted to solve is still there, you know, or the value is yeah. still there.
0: And sort of like you say, you know, you've worked at these kind of large companies. I mean, I'm looking through your your LinkedIn resume kind of reads like a a designer's wish list. Like you've worked at Google, you've worked (laughs) at Squarespace at LinkedIn. You're currently at Slack. And with these positions, you've also kind of moved between coasts. You've been in New York a little bit. You've been in San Francisco a little bit. Do you feel like you've made your mark? You know, I'm not sure that I ever will by the looks of it. Every, every year
1: I look back and I think, gosh, like everything I made last year is so terrible. You know, I always feel like I've never, haven't shipped enough and, I haven't done enough good work, but I, you know, I'm sort of very hard on myself in that way. So yeah, I don't know. I I actually think I'm hoping Slack will be the place where I feel like I made that, that real, real deep contribution. Because, you know, when I was at Google, you feel very much like a cog in a machine, I think, given the size of the company. And when I was at Squarespace, I learned so much. yeah, I was junior, I had kind of limited reach. My skills were, you know, I'm just going to say I was pretty whack early on. I got much better and I learned a lot, but like, Mm -hmm. I had, there was lots of room to grow there. So, you know, and there's that feeling when you're a designer, like you want to go and you want to, want to make a change. You want to be responsible for that thing. You want to be like, yeah, this thing is in my portfolio. I want to be able to point to it. And say, so, yeah, I made that thing. And it's, it's more difficult <laughs> in the real world when you do good work. It's like, I was part of a team that shaped that somewhat.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> um, it's a little less compelling, but I think, uh, you know, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I, have a, I think I have a little bit of a... My superpower is probably being able to spot the the core values of the team behind a product earlier on than other people might. Because <laughs> when I... You know, I, I think Squarespace was a little less well-known when I joined, and definitely Slack was a lot less well-known. But I saw early on that the product had that spirit that, you know, it told me that I, I want to work with this team. Like, I'm going to be able to get good work done with this team. So... know i'm gonna try to keep doing that i guess
0: what is the creative scene like for you in san francisco i know a lot of of talk around san francisco silicon valley etc is mostly around coding and development and hackathons and all that kind of stuff what is it like i guess for you as a designer and as a creative hmm the scene i'm sure there's a scene right there's got to be a scene (laughs)
1: Well, well, you know what it turns out designer types they tend to be all interested in the same kind of stuff and talk about the same similar sorts of things and you know even perhaps the same kinds of products. So I think I don't know it's pretty much what you would expect in terms of what happens when lots of designers start to get together or decide that there's a conference they want to go to or whatever. I think over here the network around technology is much more dense than it was in New York, so there's all sorts of events of every kind you could go to you know of anything that you might possibly be interested in with related to tech and of course since this is primarily you know this is the center of the technology industry essentially which is revolves around code and engineering you're going to hear a lot about that and of course you look around and you see you know this status i guess awarded to engineers who are making the stuff that makes you really want to get into that side of it. I don't want this to devolve into the should I learn to code conversation for the millionth time. But you know, I, I can see why that would be the question. You're kind of wondering how can I make the most impact and get my designs out there or whatever. And I don't know. I think it's more about what does it take to do great work? Who do you need to work with and what skills do they need to bring to the table and how will it actually get done? You know, It turns out when you need to actually build and release something there's kind of a a minimum set of people that you need and if you're going to fire people in order the last person to go is going to be the engineer because they're actually making that thing right that's like the bottom of the <laughs> the stack they they created the real deal you know then there's the next person up who's the person who decided and what it should look like and how it should work maybe it's the engineer maybe it's a designer maybe it's some pm or whatever and then up the chain there's like bosses and other support structures but you know, I think there's this feeling that we want to get closer to the the thing itself, closer to making it. So I don't know. I don't know. I guess the scene, I don't know. There's not like an easy way to describe the scene except that it's, it runs deep. It's everywhere. You can't really escape it it's in San Francisco because it's, you sit at a coffee shop and you hear people talking about stupid app ideas and raising money. But, you know, I don't think it's anything
0: too unusual. Okay.
1: I don't know. Maybe I need a more specific question. That was a bit of a rambly answer there.
0: All right, I'll give you a specific question. What's a typical day like for you? What's a typical day like for I do have an answer to that question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, all right. Well, at work specifically? Yeah, we'll say that. <laughs> we'll start there. We'll start at work. I get to work. I have my notes, which are, you ever use Hackpad? It's basically a collaborative editing tool. I have all my notes in there. And it's basically the stuff that I need to do in the order that I need to do it. Um, okay. So I look at that in the morning. I try, you know, I mark off anything that's done and I link to it if I need to. I put that in the completed list. Maybe I move it to the, the list of stuff done in a certain week. I keep that in another list. But whatever. I look at that list of stuff that needs to get done. And then the next thing is I just start cranking away at those designs. And honestly, some of it is, a lot of it is talking to people and extracting the answers from other people. It's really like a facilitation kind of thing, like getting all the information I need to make the solution pretty much obvious. A lot of it is a little bit more artistic, creative work. Once I know what the solution is going to be and I'm trying to figure out what the best like expression that answer is. But a lot of the group work early on is really about collecting the stakeholder demands, trying to figure out what it actually needs to be. Do we have any constraints? Do we have any false constraints that seem like things that are true, but are not true. You know, I need to talk to the engineer and and get a sense of how hard or difficult certain things are going to be. And I always do that after I do my own personal sort of mental pass at like, what is the best solution to this problem based on like the workflow that a normal human being would want to have? Like, how would they accomplish this task? So that, you know, the beginning, the morning is looking at that list, getting started, it ends up being a lot of talking to people, doing the work sort of heads down for a bit, getting stuck, working with the other designers to get unstuck, working some more, sharing where I first got my big, you know, the big like solution to reveal, like I'm coming out behind the curtain, showing the the solution to the other design team, discovering it's like the worst or it needs like twice as much work, and then going back and doing it again. And then... After that bit of the work is done, needing to basically go through that entire process again, but for the presentation of that work that I just made, to like wrap it up and make it so that whenever I show this to other people, they understand what's going on in the way that they need to. Making the diagrams for the engineers, for the workflows, and making sure all the states are fleshed out. These are things that I'm doing every day, and maybe it spans multiple days depending on the project, but it's it's very much like a facilitation role for other people to be able to get their work done i guess i would call it that's kind of the everyday i don't know you know there's lunch in the middle and a 3 p.m coffee break there sometime but (laughs) the rest of the day is
0: is what i described what gets you in your creative zone like do you listen to any music or anything like that if i'm doing more mindless work that i don't need to really focus
1: on finding a creative solution i just need to like lay a hundred things out or something like that i don't know that's that's a bad example because i wouldn't do that by hand but if there's something that I don't need to think too deeply about, I will put on some music, jam out. I have a standing desk, so you will see me bopping my head, doing a little dance, can barely contain myself. You'll probably spot me from the other side of the office <laughs> having a good time at my desk. I feel like, you know, since more uh, people of color have joined at Slack, I've seen a little bit more of that. Thank God.
0: <laughs> more dance. Yeah, a little, bit, a little bit more of that. You know, I feel like I was the only one for a while so
1: okay you know so goes. no
0: slack no slack in that slack <laughs> a little bit more
1: of that but <laughs> i'm dancing i'm listening to that music but it can also if i'm doing something i need to think really deeply about or it's like writing kind of stuff where i need to think about the language i can't listen to any music with words on it so words in it so i i'm listening to like basically like video game soundtracks i don't have any like distinct <laughs> characteristics except that some general emotional content Mm-hmm. Um, like the Monument Valley soundtrack, man, that is a soundtrack. Oh, that's a good that's, That is Good a choice.
0: One. Uh, good choice.
1: Yeah, that kind of thing. And that's when I'm like sketching and exploring possibilities and writing those ideas down. And then, then I have to take my headphones off and go talk to people to figure out, did I come up with the correct thing or the best thing?
0: Who do you admire? Like, who do you look up to for, for inspiration? Did you have any mentors or anything like that as you were... Kind of going through your design journey?
1: Mentors. Well, you know, I got a huge design crush on Johnny Ive, obviously, and all the other members of his team I heard about after I read his biography and finally discovered who else was involved on the industrial design side. I mean, it's all people like that, like people that I know have been part of like great end results because sometimes you hear about some superstar designers, but you don't actually see any of their like great work that they had like a real stamp on. Mm-hmm. And I actually recently found out about how like a certain car design works and I was disappointed to know that some, some of these famous designers are just kind of drawing some nice sketches and handing it off to another designer that does like full renderings and handing it off to another one who does a clay model and hands it off to another team that does a giant clay model. So <laughs> I don't know how many individual people there are to look up to in that respect. So I kind of just find the things, like the objects that I really like, and like, Fawn after those instead and figure out which companies worked on them and that kind of thing. So you know who's a good source for that actually? Andrew Kim, this designer from Singapore, I think. He works at Microsoft. Great blog, minimallyminimal.com. I just he just has the same aesthetic that I do, like in terms of the stuff that he likes. So I just love reading his stuff and the stuff that he looks at. But him, Johnny Ive, all those people who did have written great, insightful stuff about Design and interaction design. You know, Don Norman. I guess Edward Tufty. Like, what's his name? What am I thinking? Safer Dan Safer. I think. Safer. I think that's his okay. name. Okay. That's one of them. Jeff Raskin, The Humane Interface. Oh, yeah. Ellen Lupton, she, she wrote, has written some books on typography that are so practically useful that I just... Type about type. About, yeah, type on a screen. Thinking with type. Like, those are... Oh, such... Good one. So those are the people that I, I don't know, I I look up to, but really I'm looking up to their work, I guess. Not like I look up to Beyonce and everything she does, but, (laughs) but just like their work as designers and people who write about design and think about it. What's been inspiring you lately? Well, I've always been a huge gamer. And I think if you start looking at games and just all the media that you consume with like a critical eye, there's all this stuff you can discover and get out of it. And I wish I had realized that back in the day when I was in English class and I was wondering like what the point of it all was, that like being able to take some bit of like created fiction, artifact, writing, media, whatever, and like analyze it in a cultural context and what it's doing well and what it's doing poorly and what could be better and and what trade-offs were being made and that kind of thing. Oh man, I wish I'd learned that earlier. But if you look at games that way, There is so much design content in there around interfaces and like storytelling and setting the stage emotionally, all that stuff. Right now, like everyone else, I'm on that Fallout 4. I probably will be for, gosh, who knows? (laughs) That game game lasts forever. So I'm probably going to (laughs) be playing it for a long time because I don't have that much time to play video games. But I'm getting inspired right now by Fallout 4. And you know, that kind of thing, just finished Halo 5. You know, shout out to Anita Sarkeesian. She has done some amazing videos breaking down elements of game design in a very thoughtful and academic way I can really get behind. So, you know, she started doing some video game reviews, I think, that kind of look at the video game in, you know, our cultural context and relate it to the other games out there and what we've seen before. And I think that is something I've been looking at a lot recently and that i can really get behind
0: so if you weren't a designer what do you think you would be doing would you be into gaming or anything like that gosh if
1: i wasn't a designer you mean like if i didn't have to work or if i wasn't a designer and i had to work
0: (laughs) if you weren't a you still had to work but if you weren't a designer like what other obsessions do you have that you think you would have wanted to creatively pursue
1: so i still have to work like, do I have to? <laughs> you know, the price of life out here steep in San Francisco.
0: So hey, man, that's where you live. That's where you live. So damn high.
1: So I would probably end up in the same industry doing some other creative stuff. But if I lived somewhere else and I could afford uh, or not need to afford <laughs> so many things, then I would probably let's see. I'd probably be some sort of musician. Okay. I love that stuff. I think in another life, I owned and operated a dance studio. I um, do a lot of salsa dancing in my off time. Dance with a team in San Francisco here on Mondays. And I did that throughout school. And I like teaching. So I feel like a dance studio is an interesting combination of active lifestyle, learning, teaching, dance, all that stuff together. And then I could go home and play video games. I don't need to make a career out of that. Just I could just enjoy So.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you said musician. What uh, instruments do you play? I play the drum
1: set, but I started learning the trumpet at the end of uh, college, actually. So maybe someday I'll be able to get back into that. But it was also salsa music, so. Okay. Who knows? Someday.
0: I'm a big fan of, like, Afro-Cuban jazz.
1: Oh, yeah. That's that's kind of of cool, actually. I was um, the uh, sonero. That's what you call the uh, the sort of singing part of... The Stanford Afro Latin Jazz Ensemble, which was a mm-hmm. lot of like salsa music and Afro Cuban stuff. And I really like that kind of music because it's like, it's like so complex and multi layered, but in a, a way that's like, I think a little bit more accessible than just straight jazz. Yeah. It's more about yeah. like the performer than it is about the listener. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm.
0: It's got a certain flavor to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I love that stuff. I love it.
0: Yeah. I know for me, if I wasn't, it's so funny you mentioned. I think you might have been the only person that I've asked this to that has said musician. What
1: do they say? I think so. What do other people say?
0: Well, well, I mean, you know, they want to be maybe, it depends on who I'm speaking with. So some people may want to be a fashion designer or a writer or a photographer or things like that. I think you might have been the first person that has said musician because. If it was up to me, I would probably say the same thing. Interesting. Well, I
1: mean, I know a lot of musicians and they love it, but they can't make any money or live well. So like, that's off the table. (laughs) And and, I mean, I could have just said another kind of designer, but that's like basically what I'm doing now. That wouldn't be any different. So (laughs)
0: like if I had my way, I would have my own like Afro-Cuban big band like Bobby Sanabria.
1: (laughs) I would do something
0: along those lines.
1: I mean, that sounds like a great time.
0: Oh, yeah. Speaking of, I guess, you know, kind of uh, design and everything, were your parents really supportive of you getting into design? Well, I'm not really sure they know what it is yet, so I guess I would say they weren't not supportive.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, they just wanted me to be successful and have a job. My dad growing up was always like, hey, you should be an architect or a lawyer or a doctor. Not specifically because he wanted me to be any of those things, but just because a, he wanted one of each in the family just for, like, practical reasons, I think. I think the <laughs> architect just to have, like, he always...
0: A nice house or
1: something? Yeah, and he always said he wanted, like, a bridge with his last name on it. That's just his fantasy. And, you know, a doctor is always handy to have. You ask questions and a lawyer, same kind, of, same kind of thing. So he never actually pressured me to do any of those things. He was just like, these things are cool. They make good money and they're super handy. You check them out. But I just want you to be successful And my mom, I don't know. Her she always kind of saw college as the like education as the goal, which is kind of an interesting Mm -hmm. thing. I never noticed that until I was a little bit older, but I think you should probably talk about education as a means to, you know, living a good life and getting a job, et cetera, et cetera. Like it equips you to do stuff. But her perspective was very much like the goal was to get to college, like get into college. And I don't not really sure what the source of that was maybe the fact that she didn't finish college until much later in her life when she was like you know way past college age but you know as soon as I got into Stanford she was just like great you're done life succeeded go (laughs) off now and prosper and I think now she wants me to get a master's degree or something whatever she's like
0: (laughs) aren't you pursuing your master's right now I am I am (laughs) <laughs> I, am. I like how you sort of like blithely, like, yeah, she wants me to pursue my master's like you're not doing it.
1: Well, okay. Well, that's because I'm <laughs> getting ready to take a little bit of a break from that. To be perfectly honest with you, I okay. started when I was in – when I was at LinkedIn So mm-hmm. i having a great time at LinkedIn. I was a little bored to be honest with you. Just be straight. So you thought you would,
0: would go back to school.
1: And I thought to myself, you know what? This particular program is very flexible. It's very affordable. The company will pay for it. You know, I know I've been in the industry long enough and talked to some people about it. I'm pretty sure that I can get like, I think I calculated, it was like a like a 10K, give or take 10% pay bump just by having this master's degree. Or, or that, based on the anecdotal information I got, I saw that people with the exact same level of expertise and skills, the difference between them with no other difference taken into account, if it was just like one had a master's degree and one didn't, the difference is like a $10,000 pay bump, hmm. something like that. I don't know where I got this stuff. I was just like talking to people and I was like in the middle <laughs> of negotiating when I was asking you know, people like what they were looking for. And I, I kind of narrowed in on that number and the, the master's degree costs from Georgia Tech, this online master's degree comes out to about like, I think 8,000 or 7,000 something over the course of two, three years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I was like, hey, that's great. That works out. Math-wise, that is a good investment, especially if I don't have to pay for it. And I might as well, because what else am I doing? <laughs> I wasn't besides gaming, right? I wasn't super engaged because I was, you know, it was uh, a little bit tough getting work done. So I just started. Now, you know, fast-paced, growing startup, trying to do the best work of my life. I actually want to work a lot more than I already do on Slack stuff. So I would like to maybe free up a little bit more time. So who knows? Who knows how that'll go? I'm still doing it now. I'm still in the class right now. I'm going to do it to the end of the semester. We'll see when registration comes along. If I want to take a little bit of a pause. I got you. Keep going.
0: Where do you see yourself in, let's say, the next five years? It's 2020. What are you working on? What are you doing?
1: That is a good question. I mean, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. Actually, my master plan, as I described it to my advisor when I decided to major in product design, was to A, be a captain of industry and be retire into a comfortable professor position because that feels like a very low impact chill way of working in general plus you get to pass it on spread the knowledge wealth you know you get all these perks from being a teacher you get to be a curmudgeonly old smart guy you know telling younger folks to do stuff that was like a very that image is very appealing to me so you know, and I like teaching. I like breaking things down for people and helping them understand and sort of bring them on this journey through storytelling and sort of designing curriculum or designing stuff to be understood. That's like the essence of design, it's also the essence of teaching. So I'm interested in that. And that, I see that as being my second half of the career. That's like 20 years in, I do another 20 teaching. So this first half was just me trying to get good enough so that. When I decided to teach, people would take me seriously, I think. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah, that guy knows about design. He was a famous designer at this place or something. I don't know, something cool like that. So that was kind of my penciled-in plan. So for the next five years, I think, you know, I'm on a rocket ship right now, I feel, with Slack. Because they have the right values. They've got a great team. The product, killing it right there right now. So I think uh, this will be a great place to hang around for a good long while and Work on my design chops and get some good work done until the next play, I guess. But that's the long game. You know, later on, grow a beer. Yeah. Told, you know, college kids to do stuff and how good it was back in the old days, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Tweed blazer with leather patches on the elbow. You know
1: it. Except, no, I was going to be a cooler one. I'm going to be a cooler version of that. I'm not going to let my <laughs> all the fashion fall into disrepair just because it's just students. I mean, maybe they're going to come to lectures in their pajamas. Not this guy. Not this guy. standard. Well, didn't you teach for a while when you were in New York? I did. I did. That was my first foray, really. I started with Skillshare classes one-off because I decided I might as well get started doing some experience. It helps your presentation skills, too. And uh, someone reached out to me from the New York Code Design Academy and was like, do you want to do this (laughs) full curriculum? And I was like, oh, well, might as well give it a shot you don't, if you're not in over your head, how do you know how tall you are? You know, so I jumped right in, and that was like a pretty serious teaching gig. So I did that for, I think that was a 16-week program, I guess. Okay, that was yeah, that was a a bit of an intense experience. I think my girlfriend did teach for America, and she she described it in a similar sort of get tossed right in there, have to figure it out sort of way. So yeah, I, I did some teaching, but uh, hopefully I'll get back to that eventually.
0: All right. Well, I can tell you, I mean, since you've sort of already done a little bit of teaching, I don't want to say that you trade in one set of problems for another as a professor. But I know from people that I've spoken with, it tends to be a little different just in terms of, I guess, expectations. Like you're dealing with a different set of problems. So, for example, if you're teaching somewhere, you might have to deal with faculty, other faculty and tenure And then, you know, students, of course, are always going to be a challenge in some form or fashion. Oh, yeah. They
1: have different motivations. That's why I want to do the industry thing first. And if I go to some school and I'm all upset about how the bureaucratic blah, 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 and this person wants tenure and whatever the way it works, I won't really care because I'll just, I kind of want to retire into teaching. You see what I mean? Like, yeah. (laughs) Like if you live your entire life in academia and that's like your like career, That is a problem. To me, it's just another, I see it as like an eventual design challenge that I'm going to be totally fine with because by then I should be secure enough in my skill set and hopefully have made a little cash from the design work in the past that I'm just worried about. How can I best reach these kids who really just want to go out and have a good time? Blah, blah, blah.
0: All right. (laughs) I could see that happening. You know, maybe... Maybe not in a, a dangerous minds or higher learning sort of way, but <laughs> but certainly in a way where you're reaching them and talking about the work that you're doing. And, you know, honestly, I mean, having the the resume where you say like, yeah, I've taught, I mean, I've, not I've taught, I've worked at Slack and Facebook and Google and all these places. Not Facebook. You haven't worked at Facebook. I have not. <laughs> uh, Squarespace is what I meant to say. Squarespace and Google and LinkedIn and Slack, you've worked at these places. I think people will be impressed by that. You know, that'll give you some cachet.
1: <laughs> I hope so. But, I, I mean, I'm actually betting by the time I get to that kind of teaching, the students are going to be like, what? I use WhatsApp, Snapchat. I've never heard of your Facebook. That's so old school or whatever. it like <laughs> saying
0: you work for MySpace. Yeah,
1: you know, like, that's not cool. So, I, it's, it's more of a personal <laughs> thing, I think. <laughs> I just have to feel like I have the knowledge enough to teach, and that'll be the next level. It's like, I don't know if you've ever heard this martial arts kind of phrase that, like, at some point you get good enough that the only way to continue getting better is to teach the material. And that's kind of how I feel about design probably. So,
0: well, yeah. And, and honestly, you end up learning more from teaching because you're kind of showing someone else that's just at a blank slate, right, right? You really start to get more of a didactic look at the work that you do. How, how do you take it and dissect it into a way where it's hopefully easily understandable by students? That's a skill that really only comes through application. You can't just, yeah. just learn that in a book. Yeah. You know, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online?
1: My website is uxdiogenes.com. UX and then my first name, .com. Actually, I got a dope new domain name. I should talk about that. Dio.works. works. oworks D-I-O.works. <laughs> I'm okay. excited about that. I should switch my stuff over. But that'll definitely take you to the right place. That's my stuff. But really, maybe more useful would even be following me on Twitter. I am at UX Diogenes, U-X-D-I-O-G-E-N-E-S on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I like to post about design and share the love about design and other people doing design work out there. So that's a pretty handy way to learn.
0: Sounds good, man. Yeah. Well... Diogenes Brito, thank you again for taking time out of your day for speaking with me about the work that you're kind of doing at Slack, kind of learning more about your design philosophy, how you approach design problems, and really kind of seeing where you'll go in the future. I know that a lot of people are probably just finding out about you from that one piece about just a brown hand, but i I'm, I'm really just finding
1: out about me like right now, like you think so. <laughs> That feels like the beginning of my career. Like Mom, just things are just opening up for me. That's
0: well awesome. that's good. That means that people will see you as more than just a brown hand. See what I think? <laughs> They'll see you as more than just a brown hand. But but no man, thank you again so much. I really appreciate it. From one int J to another, <laughs> thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thoughts of love. Are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Diogenes Brito, and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Diogenes and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover, and you can save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code SPREADLOVE at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. I'll even read your review right here on the show. Oh, and don't forget, one, vote for Revision Path in the Creative Market Award for Most Inspiring Design Podcast. There'll be a link in the show notes. And two, don't forget about our holiday gift guide contest. Go to revisionpath.com, click the green banner at the top of the page, scroll to the bottom, fill that out. The deadline on both of those is December 15th, so go ahead and jump on it. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revisionpath and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.